0: Good morning, Merry Christmas. There is a lot of uh, different uh, styles when it comes to Christmas. And uh, that's kind of what this series has been about. As you uh, study uh, your Bible, you'll discover that there's all different types of literature and they all tell the story of Christmas in kind of a unique way. You got poetry and prophecy and wisdom literature and they all tell the story. And so today we're gonna complete this series Uh, We're going to finish this series up. And uh, next Sunday, we'll promo this later in the service. But next Sunday, uh, we're starting a a new series called Red Letters, uh, which is going to take us through the Sermon on the Mount uh, right up till about two or three weeks before Christmas. So, or Easter, excuse me. We're not going to be at that long. So, uh, Easter. All right. So let's go ahead and pray. And then uh, we'll wrap this series up. All right. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for Jesus. And uh, we thank you for uh, the story of Christmas. Uh, which is the story of Jesus. And uh, we just want to lift him up and celebrate him this morning. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let me ask you a question uh, as we get started uh, this morning. What is your favorite Christmas movie? All right, go ahead and think about that for just a second. Your favorite Christmas movie. Now just go ahead and turn to your neighbor and tell them real quick what it is. Favorite Christmas movie. All right. I would guess that in a room uh, like this, with this many people in it, uh, that we have a few National Lampoon people. You, all right, we, have a, we have a few National Lampoon people. Uh, love a good comedy about Clark W. Griswold trying to bring the magic of Christmas uh, to his family, despite the shenanigans of uh, Cousin Eddie and an uncaring boss. And he, it's a wonderful life, people. Oh, come on. All right. <laughs> I'm praying for all of you. All right, It's a Wonderful Life tells the story of George Bailey. It's one of my favorites uh, who learns at Christmas time that everyone who has friends has lived a rich life. Uh, Any Christmas story, people, it'll be on all day. All right, Christmas story. Uh, Watched it for the first time last year, believe it or not. I'd never, uh, 40 years of life, I'd never seen it. The story of Ralphie trying to get his uh, Red Ryder BB gun, really good movie. Uh, Grinch, Few Grinches, all right. Um, And uh, Sam and I DVR'd that. The real, uh, the the live-action Grinch. uh, We watched the cartoon too. But um, I I love Christmas movies now. Is there any Charlie Brown people? Is that anyone's, say? All right, yeah. Uh, Charlie Brown is a lot of people's uh, favorite Christmas movie. And if you ever have, if you've seen that movie this year, you know that there is a time where Linus kind of gets up on the stage and he reads a passage of scripture and he's trying to teach what Christmas is all about. And he reads this passage. Let me put it on the screen for you. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree I can't do it as good as Linus, but bear with me. That a census should be taken of the entire world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will be great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace on, uh, on, uh, peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests." when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go, right? Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. I love that kind of detail of the Bible. Mary and Joseph were not lying in the manger, the baby was. Uh, When they had seen him, Uh, They spread the word concerning uh, what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which uh, which were just as they had been told. And this is traditionally what we think of as the start of the Christmas story. Uh, and in a lot of ways it is, but I want to make the argument to you that I don't think the Christmas story starts with a manger, all right? The manger is really cool, and we celebrate that, but I want to make the argument to you that I think the Christmas story actually starts in a garden, all right? doesn't start in a manger, it starts in the garden. If, you, if you're familiar uh, with the Bible, you know that in Genesis chapter one, God created the heavens and the earth uh, he created, uh, you know, uh, this beautiful garden. He created the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars. He created cats, and then he said, I can do better, so he created dogs, right? He, he did that whole thing. Then he forms the man out of the dust of the ground, uh, and he creates the woman out of him. And they were free to eat from any tree in the garden. Uh, they were free, but they also had free will, right? God created this with free will. So there was one tree in the middle of the garden. God said, you're free to eat from any tree, but the tree in the middle of the garden, you must not eat from it or you will surely die. And you would think with hundreds, maybe even thousands of trees all over the garden and one poisonous tree, that they would have stayed away from the poisonous tree and you would be mistaken. And I would make the argument to you, you also don't have children, all right? Um... <laughs> Because uh, we we get this. Those of us that have kids get this. I, I can tell you already here at Christmas time, I found myself saying these words. You have thousands of toys in the house to play with and enjoy. But there is a tree in the corner of the house covered in valuable ornaments and lots of lights. You must not touch it or play with it. You must not eat of it or you will surely die. All right? So... And, and that's just, we, we know how this works. The first man and the first, this is their situation. The first man and the first woman, they were tempted. They ate from the tree that they were supposed to not eat from. They're ashamed. They hid from God. And God in his mercy, listen, God in his mercy refused to let them stay in that garden as sinful human beings. God said, you're not going to live for all of eternity as sinful human beings. Instead, I'm going to do something about their sin. And that becomes the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is the story of a God who's on a rescue mission of mankind. And I want to submit to you that I want to kind of break the Bible up into three chapters for us, all right? And I would call chapter one the nation building chapter. Nation building. That God goes to this farmer named Abraham and he says, Man, leave your country, leave your people, leave your dad's household, and start walking. I'll stop you when you get to where I want you to be. And Abraham recklessly does it. And God's promise to Abraham is he says, I'm going to build you into a great nation. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And the entire world will be blessed through this nation. And the only problem, one little, little problem, Abraham had no children. And he and his wife, the Bible says it this way, I would never say this about somebody, but the Bible says they were old and well-advanced in years. Right? Right? So they're not probably having kids, right? And so it's hard to build a nation uh, without children, but, and it's a really miraculous story if you read it sometime. But Abraham and, and Sarah end up having a child. His name is Isaac. Uh, Isaac has children. And then uh, this is the kind of PC way of saying it. His children are fruitful and multiply, right? You can ask your parents about that on the way home, right? And the family becomes a series of tribes. They eventually form a nation. The nation begins to grow and prosper. They eventually get land called Israel after being freed from slavery in Egypt. And there comes this time in the nation's history when they look around at all their neighbors and they say, all of our neighbors are governed by a king, by an earthly king. God, we would like a king. And God says, well, I kind of designed you as a nation where I would be your king. God wanted to be their king. They said, No, we want an earthly king. Please give us an earthly king. And so God gives them what they asked for. God gave it to them. And this is chapter two of our story. It's called, chapter two is nation life. That this nation has kings. And some of them are really good, really godly, really diligent. And some of them are really bad and really evil. And I know as a democratic republic, we don't get this idea that you can have good leaders and bad leaders, but just trust me, it's true. Right? And so in this kind of monarchy, they, they had good kings and they had bad kings. But during this era, they form a capital called Jerusalem. They build a temple that becomes the center of worship for, for the nation. The temple develops this priesthood that oversees it. God institutes a sacrificial system where the wages of sin is death, but God said, I'll make you a great deal, All Right? The wages of sin is death. I'll allow a lamb to stand in your place. It's called substitutionary atonement. I'll allow a substitute for you. And so he develops this whole sacrificial system. God develops prophets that come to the nation and preaches to them, like I'm preaching to you, and warns them about sin. And some people had a change of heart. They repented. They turned back to God. And some just refused to do that and continued on their way. And that brings us to chapter 3, the exile and return. There comes a point in Israel's history where they've just gone so far from God, that God allows the nation of Babylon to come in and defeat the nation and take them into captivity. And Babylon killed a lot of Israelites. They, they, They did, but they also took into slavery a lot of Israelites and took them back to their nation. And these passages of scripture during the exile are so difficult to read because the promise had been to Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna give you land and a people to numerous to count. And through that nation, the entire world will be blessed. And during this season of Israel's history, like, we've lost everything, we've totally screwed up. We've lost our land, we've lost our people. We, there, there is no way blessing can come to the entire world and it appears as if their nation has been destroyed and that their hope is in shambles. But God has not forgotten Israel. And there comes a time in the story when Israel returns to their nation. They rebuild their wall. They rebuild their city. They rebuild their temple. And hope is restored and life goes on. And the people are waiting now. All right, After the return, they are waiting to see what God's going to do. When will the Christ come? When will the Messiah come? When when will the one come who is going to be a blessing to the entire world? world. And Matthew, in in Matthew, the introduction to the Christmas story, it starts in this really interesting way. Matthew starts his Christmas story with a genealogy. This is the part we usually skip. And it's okay, I do too, all right? That's not just, we, we see a whole list of names and we're like, boring, snoozeville, and we skip it but Matthew thought this was important. And he starts with the genealogy and Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is really, really interesting that our genealogies, uh, some of you do genealogies. Our genealogies are meant to give an accurate timeline of our family's history. Genealogies in Jesus's day were not meant to do that. Genealogies in Jesus's history were meant to give a compressed view of family history in order to tell a story. And so, like I said, Matthew's genealogy is really interesting for a couple reasons. One is it includes women, which genealogies in Jesus' day hardly ever included women. But Jesus' genealogy does, and I think it was kind of a wink and a nod to how radically different Jesus was going to treat women. He was going to treat them with dignity, respect, and honor. Matthew's genealogy also includes some very scandalous stories, which I find very interesting. At one point uh, in the genealogy, Matthew says this. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And at this point, everybody reading the genealogy would have gasped. It's like, Matthew, come on, you, don't, you didn't have to bring that up, right? This goes back to a time in, the, in the Israel's history where one of their greatest kings, David, had an affair uh, with uh, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He ended up having her husband killed so he can marry her. And Matthew could have said, David was the father of Solomon, period. He could have done that. Or he could have said, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. He didn't do that either. He said, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And you say, why does Matthew do that? This will be a hope for some of you. He said, hey, Jesus' family was messed up too. Right? Jesus' family was messed up too. And he's also kind of a wink and a nod. This is who Jesus came for right? He came for sinners. He came for screw-ups. He came for those who had messed up. He came for people that were far from God, and he he came to forgive them and to show them a better way. Now, including women and including these scandalous stories are really interesting, but I want to tell you what I think is the most interesting part of Matthew's genealogy and the part of it that I spent longer than I should have on this week, but here it is, studying what this could have possibly meant. Matthew 1, 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from, uh, uh, to, in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And what's really interesting about this is that we know there were more than 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus, but remember what I said, genealogies were not meant to give an accurate timeline uh, as much as they were to tell a story, so Matthew is not making a technical point here, but he's making a point nonetheless, all right, so what is the point that Matthew is trying to make? by saying 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus, all right, that is a very condensed view of history, so what was his point? Well, there's two possibilities. One was numerology, all right? Just stick with me on this, all right? This is not very Christmasy, I know, but I found it interesting. Here's the theory. It took six do- six, God six days to create the heavens and the earth, six days to create para- paradise. It all fell apart because of sin. But six in the Bible is the number of God's work, all right? It's the number of God's creation, Seven in the Bible is the number of completeness. It is the number of perfection. So six times seven is? All right, you're keeping up with me. Great. All right, six times seven is 42. So some people think that Matthew is being clever with numbers here. That for 42 generations, from Abraham to Jesus, for 42 generations, God was at work. All right, lining things up. Getting things ready. God was at work for 42 generations. God was at work for what reason? To bring the perfect solution, right? Six days of work times seven, the number of perfection, 42. So for 42 seasons, God is working and bringing about change and developing the nation. And then he brings about the perfect solution to our sin problem, the Messiah, the Christ, the newborn king. That's numerology. I'm not a huge fan of it. Am I allowed to say that in church? Right? I, I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan of numerology. I find it interesting. I think it's possible. But here's what I think Matthew was doing. I think Matthew was outlining the story in a unique way. Um, Matthew, before he left everything to follow Jesus, was a tax collector. He was good with numbers. He liked to have things organized. And I think that the most likely scenario, although the number thing is possible, I think the most likely scenario is that he gives this condensed view of history to organize the story, right? That for 14 generations, we have nation building. For 14 generations, we have nation life. And for 14 generations, we have exile and return. And then we get to Jesus. And you might be tempted to say at this point in the sermon, because I've kind of set it up this way. You might be tempted to say, all right, so, all right, chapter 1, is nation, uh, nation building. Chapter two is nation life. Chapter three is exile and return. So like chapter four is Jesus. And, and, and I totally get that and I see where you're coming from. But here is what I want you to see in the sermon today. I'm gonna put this on the screen for you. Jesus is not another act in the play. Jesus is the whole play, right? He's not another act in the play. He's the whole play. Jesus is not another chapter in the story, The whole story is about him, right? So Jesus is not chapter four. Chapters one, two, and three are all pointed to and leading us to Jesus. And so listen, if you've been around here for a while, you know I am not opposed to Santa Claus at all. We watch the movies, we enjoy it. I'm not even opposed to the storyline that has taken kind of precedent in our culture that Christmas is all about family. I love my family, I love spending time with them. But it's important that we see this and not lose sight of it. The story of Christmas is the story of Jesus, but it even goes a step beyond that. The story of the Bible, the whole thing, the story of the Bible is the story of Jesus. He's not another cliff note. He's not another chapter. He's not another act. The whole kit and caboodle is about him. So it is not a group of individual stories about Abraham and Moses and David and the kings. It is not a bunch of individual stories. It is one story. It's the story of how God in his infinite love and grace rescued us for sin and made a way for us to come back to him. Sin separated us. Jesus restores us. So it's the story of how God in his infinite grace provides us a way back to our heavenly father and provides us a way to know him in a a unique and good way. And so once you know that the whole story is about Jesus, you begin to see how everything points to Jesus, that Jesus is our new and better Abraham who left his father's house and came to earth to rescue and redeem mankind. He is our new and better Isaac, God's one and only son who sacrificed himself so we could know God and worship him in this life and in the next. He is the chosen one who brought blessing to the entire world. He is our new and better king. While some kings were better and some kings were worse in the Old Testament, in Jesus we have the perfect king who always leads us in the right direction. He is our new and better prophet. A prophet's just a truth teller, a preacher. And Jesus always comes to us with a word from the Father that is good for us. He is our, he is our new and better prophet. He is our new and better priesthood. That you no longer need a human priest to stand between you and your father. Because of Jesus and because of his sacrifice, you can know God, worship God, honor God, and follow God in this life and in the next. You can approach God, the writer of Hebrews says, with confidence in the name of Jesus covered by his grace. He is our new and better sacrificial system. The wages of sin is death, death of our relationship with God and physical death. So in the temple system, you'd have to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem and sacrifice animals so that your sin could be covered. But now we have Jesus, the perfect blameless lamb, the perfect blameless son of God who ties in our place so that we can know God. He is our new and better hope. That when the, the story of Israel appeared that the nation was gone, the promise was gone, there was no hope. In Jesus, we see a perfect hope that we can trust him with our lives. and We can trust him in this life. We can trust him in the next. The whole story is about him. He is the play. He is. The play's about him. He is the book. The whole thing is about him and for him. So what do you do with that? This Christmas, what do you do that? When you see the baby laying in the manger, this whole thing's about him. The whole story's about him. What do you do with that? And my prayer for you all this week has been that you would accept him, that you would receive the greatest gift, the greatest blessing, that those of us that follow Jesus know it's the greatest gift we could ever receive. And so here's my prayer for you on the screen. My prayer is that he would be your prophet, It's one thing to recognize that Jesus was a great prophet. It is another thing to recognize him as your prophet and that you would allow Jesus and his words to preach to you, guide you, and change you. My prayer for you is that he would be your king, not just the king, but your king, that you would obey him and serve him and honor him as king. My prayer is that he would be your priest and your lamb that you would trust in him to be your sacrifice, to offer himself so that you could know God today and forever. And my prayer for you is that he would be your hope, that you would trust him for a better future today and forever. He is the greatest gift of Christmas, and the whole thing is about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that the whole story is about and for your son, Jesus. He is our new and better Abraham. He is our new and better Isaac. He is our new and better priest system He is our new and better sacrificial lamb. He is our new and better hope. We just wanna put our hope in Jesus. And so right now, as we get ready to receive communion together, Uh, I just pray that this would be a celebration of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. We thank you for him. It is in his name that we pray, amen. We're gonna receive communion together right now. And it is, like I said in the prayer, it is just a celebration of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. So we'll pass it out. You'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body on the cross. Uh, our sacrificial lamb, and the other is some juice that represents his blood that he shed on the cross. And this is just an opportunity for those of you that have put your faith in Jesus. This is an opportunity for you to say thank you. This is an opportunity for you to remember. This is an opportunity for you to honor. And so just receive uh, the the two cups, hold on to them, and I'll come back up here in just a minute, and uh, we'll receive it together as a church family.